1: This on
2: hello? hello
0: we're all science people science
2: exactly evolution does some pretty funky things there's chemistry in here there's biology in here the old question
1: in science is how do you know that achievement equals skill times effort that's the recipe for success
3: i'm about to show you something so cool it'll blow your mind we can
1: make the world better for everybody starting now Welcome, welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye. This is the show where science rules, and it's a call-in show. If you want to be on the show, and I hope you do, please leave us a voicemail at 201-472-0785, 201-472-0785, or go to your homepage, which I'm sure is askbillnye.com. You can also check me out on the Twitters and the Book of Faces and the Gram uh, to find out about our upcoming guests. I am joined once again today by science writer, editor, and seriously, people, dear friend Corey S. Powell.
3: Greetings, Corey. Oh, greetings, Bill. Uh, Now, Bill, do you know what I think about a lot? Honestly, maybe a little too much.
1: Uh, I think so. Uh,
3: Yeah, yeah. You know what? Don't answer that. What I'm talking about is time travel. Uh, the kind of time that, travel that we different. all do. Yeah, that's yeah, the, yeah. the kind of time travel that we all do, you know, moving ahead in the world at a rate of uh, one second per second. And I just always feel like there's all this possibility ahead. I want to know where it's taking us, what's next in science and technology and all the good stuff that well, you, isn't here just you yet. You have
1: come to the right place, Mr. Paul, oh, thank Because God. today our guest is none other than Juan Enriquez. He's the managing director of Excel Venture Management a venture capital firm specializing in biotechnology. And he is the author of As the Future Catches You, How Genomics and Other Forces Are Changing Your Life, Work, Health, and Wealth. And his new book, which comes out in October, is going to be Right or Wrong, How Technology Transforms Our Ethics. Uh, Juan Enriquez, welcome to Science Rules. May I call you Juan? Of course. Now, you and I met a few years ago. On the ice sheet.
2: Yes, in uh, Greenland. Uh, in
1: Greenland. We were there on the ice sheet where people study climate change by looking at the ice cores, the, uh, the bubbles of ancient air trapped in the ice. And you gave a very compelling little talk about biotechnology. Uh, is that what you're really excited about is the changes coming in uh, life sciences?
2: You know, the single most boring document you ever receive is when you show up at a new school or a new business. And they give you a great big ethics manual. And it's just so damn boring because you know all of that. You know right from wrong. And what fascinates me about technology is it's moving so quickly and exponentially. What would happen if technology actually changed what we believe to be right and wrong? And what happens if that's changing ever faster?
1: So hang on a second. To me, this is something that always gets me about all robotic science fiction stories, all this and that, is that. Is technology doing something or is science doing something? Well, technology comes from people. Humans make this stuff up. They create these machines. They
3: create right, it this. Does, it doesn't have agency.
1: <laughs> yeah, well said. It doesn't have, it's not its own thing. However, to an individual, it sure seems like it. You look around and all this stuff's going on. Your phone can uh, make toast and some of them make oatmeal, I guess. And uh, so it seems like the phone has agency, or this mythic character Siri, has agency, or Alexa.
2: It comes from our using technology. Right? So so let's think about what happened for millennia. For millennia, it was normal and natural to work people to death. The average lifespan was 25 to 32 years.
1: Those were the days. And Come on.
2: Those were the days. We want to go back <laughs> to those days. No technology. And and what's fascinating is A single barrel of oil has about 10 years of human labor in it. So the energy inside there allows you basically 10 years of a person's work. They're talking about physical
1: labor, somebody plowing a field, hoeing a row or something like that?
2: Exactly. Or picking up bricks or walking upstairs or even being on a stair map.
1: This is converting
2: uh, joules or foot pounds. Exactly. And so what happens when you're traveling across the Atlantic or the Pacific across country it's the equivalent of having 320,000 of those rowers. Remember those Roman galleons yes. where somebody used to beat the drum and they'd pull on? Those were well, the days.
3: People.
1: Yeah, we're, we're, were, the we're, days. we're
2: going through a
3: great nostalgia fest here, but thank you.
2: <laughs> so anyway, how many people is that worth? About 320,000 rowing hour after hour. So being able to tap into
3: chemical energy, being able to make us burn coal and then, uh, then burn oil, this was an ethical revolution because you didn't need labor the way it was before? Is that your point? Yeah.
2: So all of a sudden, we don't need child labor. We had child labor for millennia. We had you know, people who were oppressed and worked to death in China, in India, in Africa, the Incas, the Mayans, the Chinese. Everybody was in the habit of working people to death. And you didn't have eight-hour workdays. You didn't have vacations. You didn't have holidays. And part of what we've done and part of what's happened is the ability to harness technology has made things we used to do absolutely wrong. Take the way we used to power our houses, right? So there was this giant whaling industry in Nantucket, and, and basically that whaling industry was to light the lamps in your house. And, and we look back at the extinction of these extraordinary creatures or near extinction of these extraordinary creatures and go, what the hell were they thinking? How, how could that have been right? But of course, we're doing it from the perspective of having electricity with a switch. And and the thing which I think is really important in these days of certainty and anger and I know right, I know wrong, is that we understand that as technology changes, people are going to look at what we're doing today and say, what were you thinking? Why were you so unethical? So give us an example. So one of the things that's happening very quickly is the cost of producing energy out of solar and wind is dropping just at an exponential rate. And as soon as that crosses the price of coal, coal coal-fired plants will convert to solar and wind because it'll be faster, better, cheaper to use solar or wind than fossil fuels. Now, when that happens, one of the things that's going to happen is our kids are going to look back and say, how dare you have warmed the planet? Well, they're already doing that. It's a different situation when an absolute majority finds it faster, better, cheaper to use a new technology because then you can be both more generous and more judgmental.
1: Uh You can be
2: more generous towards the environment and far more judgmental towards the past. Right. Mm -hmm. When you start getting synthetic meats and they're better for you and you don't have to grow the animal for three years, I can't tell you what the pictures of, you know, are walking into a fancy steakhouse somewhere and, and do you realize that grandpa used to walk into steakhouses and there would be carcasses of animals? Or you can't be serious. That, you know, <laughs> they said they were aging the meat and they used to eat animals that had been alive, yeah. right? I mean, it's just, it's going to be so inconceivable.
1: When you say it's uh, this is ethics, what about uh, our interaction person to person? You you mentioned slavery, child labor, and so on. What about just everyday interaction on the street, do you think that's going to change?
2: So one of the things that pushed me to write this book is I grew up in Mexico and I went to Jesuit school, and I went to Mass every day at 7 a.m. during all of grammar school. And every one of my teachers, preachers, peers, newspapers, parents, everybody I respect told me that one of the worst things you could be was being gay. Being gay. Yes. Yes. And, and so, what's fascinating to me is even though you had the first films with kisses between men in the 1920s, and even though you had the first television shows with kisses between men and, and men and women and women in the 1970s, through 1997, there wasn't enough exposure to this culture, to these extraordinary creative people. So it was easy to separate them to denigrate them. In 1997, two-thirds of Americans were against gay marriage. And and what's fascinating to me is within 20 years on something which is, you know, part of what people consider their core belief system on both sides, it went to two-thirds majority. And, And what did this was exposure through technology to this extraordinary group of people and their culture and this creativity and everything else, because all of a sudden, the radio and the theater and the movies and the podcasts and everything else. All of a sudden, how how could you ever conceive of these folks as the other?
3: But you really think that the changes in media technology since 1997, obviously, I mean, the internet and social media, are, you think those are the main things that are driving that that moral change, that ethical change?
2: I, I think it drives it so quickly. It brings an awareness, right? Look, the, the protests we recently lived through – Contrast that with the Rodney King protests that took place almost thirty years ago.
1: You're absolutely right. When everybody can right? see that video, things just are changing very fast. Yeah,
2: it and it goes global. Yeah, right. It's the video. It's everybody's a broadcaster. Everybody's a film producer, and and so technology brings an immediacy to a problem, and says you shouldn't be doing this. This has got to stop. You know that's been going on for. Dozens of years, hundreds of years, thousands so of years. Do you, and, do you
1: see a technology that's going to take it the next step? The Rodney King protests were a pretty big deal. And when I was a kid, Resurrection City and the I Have a Dream speech and all that, these were big deals. But to me, the, the idea is about the same. When you can see it and hear it, uh, exactly. you react to it. Just that I think if I understand your point, now it's all happening so fast.
2: And at such scale.
1: At scale, yes.
2: To quote Vladimir Lenin, of all people, there are decades where nothing happens and there are weeks where decades happen.
1: Uh, yeah. And so yeah.
2: and so, what technology does is it creates those weeks where all of a sudden decades occur. Mm-hmm. Right. There's a before and after you access the Internet and before and after you had email.
1: I talk about this all the time, just how quickly the country of Australia decided we're going to allow gay marriage. Whereas that went on for, I guess, about two centuries where it was on a whole continent, if you will. So what do you see coming next?
2: Come on, that's that's what we all want to know. You know, let's talk about something completely uncontroversial. Let's talk about sex for a minute. Sure.
1: Well, I I hardly think about it.
2: Imagine a conversation with your grandparents and you bring them back and they're 21 years old. They're sitting in front of you and you explain to them that now you can consistently have sex and not have a child. And, and that would just blow their minds because usually sex had a consequence. Yes. And now we control and separate the act from the consequence. So
3: this is, this is another technological disruption. Exactly. But did it change ethics?
2: Well, it certainly changed how much sex people had, how they looked at sex. How they talked about how it. How they cohabit. Um, you know, now it's weird if people don't cohabit before marriage. It's, it's flipped that 180 degrees. Again, if if anybody had told your grandparents, you cannot have people touch each other and conceive a child, they would have said, well, that's the immaculate conception, right? But now it turns out to be in vitro fertilization. Uh So two bodies never come together and you conceive a child. And by the way, you can freeze an embryo, have a surrogate mother. And what you've now done is you've now decoupled sex from time. So you can have identical twins born 30 years apart. And and all of these things would seem weird and miraculous. Now, push that discussion forward. Right now, we talk about gene editing and we say, oh my goodness, you should never go into gene editing of children unless if it's a devastating disease and yada, yada, yada. It's perfectly conceivable as this becomes faster, better, cheaper, that our grandkids will say, do you know that my parents were so backward? They didn't even edit out... a." KRAS gene. They didn't need edit out a P53 gene, and I have cancer now because they didn't edit my genome.
1: So speaking of, we have a voicemail about gene editing. So can we roll that digital recording? I'd like you to react on the other side.
0: I was wondering if eventually one day in the distant future that humans would genetically engineer ourselves to be better, to, you know, not have wisdom teeth or like the appendix or organs that aren't needed And so you wouldn't have to have, like, surgeries that aren't necessary, I guess? I don't know. Or do you think social constructs would block that?
3: Oh, there's your question. There it is. There's your question. And I think, you know, obviously there's some easy answers like, oh, well, cancer. Of course you don't want to have cancer. But what if your parents are, you know, they edited you to be tall and blonde and, you know, they gave you traits that you get older. You think, I wish I could have just been whatever I was going to be.
2: What's fascinating, what people find very hard to grasp, is that their entire life they can live with one notion of right and wrong, and it can flip 180 degrees in one week. And, And we actually watched that happen with the first in vitro fertilization. The polls were massively against test tube babies until that very first cute photograph of this little gurgling baby on the tabloid covers. And then all of a sudden, public opinion flipped to a majority in favor, so you could easily see embryos carried externally instead of carried in a womb. We're already doing that with calves. So
1: here's the big one for me. You know, when you when you choose a mate, I say all the time, your enemy is not mountain lions or tigers and bears. Your enemy is diseases, germs, and parasites, and we're living through this pandemic. Do you see a connection between CRISPR where you accidentally introduce a lack of immunity? Like, in other words, it is believed that the reason a peahen picks a peacock is by checking out his feathers to see if he's got diseases. And the reason you pick any mate is based on what you perceive. And it may be with through your sense of smell, what you perceive as his or her immune system.
2: I think that's one of the most interesting questions in science. I think you're you're exactly on the right track because we have pretty good examples of that. And, and there's two ways of addressing that question. The first is when you need an organ for transplant, one of the least likely matches is your spouse. And so somehow instinctively, you know, probably through smell that this person has a very different immune system,
1: but just different enough, right? You don't want it radically different.
3: This is the right. you want to stay within the same species generally,
1: yeah,
2: sure. and that kind of doubles the chances that your child will recognize X disease and Y disease and Z disease. Apparently, birth control pills eliminate that ability to make that distinction,
1: or, or it's maybe a spectrum. They reduce it somehow, right?
2: Exactly, yeah and so to your point there are chemical ways of altering our mate choice and if you push that forward you know there's there's a whole series of people who end up without fundamental glands to make hormones and therefore they can dial up their hormones or dial down their hormones they can feel much more like a woman much more like a man they can alter their moods and and so Wouldn't be shocking in a couple generations that as part of your education, you end up in the other person's shoes for a week Uh or two.
3: I mean, could you see somebody actually seeing it like this is a greater exploration of free will, that the, the people are more enlightened and more empathetic as a result?
2: That whole question of free will gets really interesting with technology because especially as you start going after the brain, Right On the one hand, you've got chemicals that can fundamentally alter your moods, and you're starting to have electrical interventions that maybe could read your thoughts someday, maybe can erase thoughts, maybe can implant thoughts. We're not there yet, but imagine, you know, in a couple of decades, if you could do that, what's the legitimate use of that technology? Stick around for more science rules after this.
0: Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean... Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Science Rules is back.
3: This is all very cool, but at the same time, I feel like you know, we're looking at this reality right now where our healthcare system can barely handle getting tested for a virus and, and distributing masks. Are, are we going to need a totally different system to manage... this this next wave of
2: technology? Or
1: or is it going to be even worse where rich people have access to it and everybody else doesn't?
2: There's two parallel tracks in ethics. There's a track where our notion of right and wrong is changing very quickly. And there's a path where right and wrong is heading in the wrong direction. We're, We're being less and less ethical. And I would argue, especially the US healthcare system, is suffering from something called Bommel's disease after an economist. And what Bommel's disease, what his observation was, it it takes exactly the same amount of people and instruments to play a symphony today, 100 years ago, 200 years ago. But the cost of every player has gone through the roof. So your average productivity has dropped. So what's happening in healthcare? We've set up a healthcare system where on the price of drugs, we're running Moore's Law in reverse. It's getting more and more and more expensive every year for a smaller and smaller population. And so until we can fix that, until healthcare starts becoming faster, better, cheaper, the way we treat people is crazy unethical. We allow people to get sick and we don't get paid sick leave, which means people have a huge incentive to go back to work, even if they're sick. We tell them that they can't have Refunds for an airplane ticket if they're sick, which means you incentivize sick people to sit next to you on an airplane. It's fascinating to me that so many things are getting more ethical, but education, and healthcare are two areas where what we're doing is less and less ethical. So one of the smartest people on change was this wonderful journalist called David Halberstam.
1: Oh yeah, sure. And he
2: wrote he wrote a book called The Reckoning.
1: About uh, Ford and uh, Nissan,
2: right? Bingo. Yeah. And, and he talked about how this was the dominant company in the dominant country and the dominant this, that. And it was unassailable. And we think of U.S. medicine as the pinnacle. The smartest researchers, the best hospitals, the best this, best that. I think U.S. healthcare is due for an enormous fall. Because most of what we're paying for is insurance and bureaucracy and procedures that you don't need. We're, we're treating our elder people like ATMs where it's a pay for procedure basis. Other countries are spending half to a third of what we're spending on healthcare and there are populations that are living longer. So, you know, I think there's enormous advantage in some of the healthcare research in this country, but it certainly is not being faster, better, cheaper. And And that leaves a space for other countries to come in with a better vaccine. You see this example all over the place. In India, there's a LASIK surgery clinic that has far better results than any clinic in the United States, and they charge you know, tens of dollars, and the doctor does a couple hundred operations per day. And if you can imagine an operating room where you've got 200 people lined up, and he goes in and he just does the 200 operations, and you're you're going to see more and more of that. Throughout the world, it, I and then you think it'll go is, from
1: other countries into the U.S. In this example,
2: well, you've already got tourism where it's cheaper to send somebody to to India to other get the basics
1: and then come back. In this one example,
2: yeah, yeah, or to get a hip replacement, but this or is, uh, a knee replacement. Yeah,
1: I can see where the the resistance to this, though, in the U.S. has been funded by lobbying groups from the insurance companies. I mean, otherwise the Affordable Care Act would not be assailed three dozen times. Do you think that can change or or do you think it's just inherently, if I may, pun intended, sick here and will never get fixed?
2: Well, let me tell you what's at stake. This is now about 17 or 18% of the U.S. GDP. So about a fifth of the economy goes to this. And if we don't get the science and the administration, the management of this stuff, under better control. Other countries will spend 10% less of their GDP on this, which means they have space for education, they have space for defense, they have space for culture, they have space for preventive medicine, for all kinds of stuff. So, you know, I'm trying very hard to work on a series of groups to first be aware of this, because there's an arrogance. There's an arrogance of, you know this is the way we do it. And we've always we are the dominant medical system. And of course, in Boston, you know that's in spades. Uh, and, and some of the smartest people in the world are working in this space. And, and, and I respect them enormously, but they're working in a system that is fundamentally broken and has to change. So how are you going to change it? How are you going to change it? So, you know, on the one hand, I'm working with the Institute of Medicine on the adoption of the implications of the new technologies. I've done talks at places like TedMed on how how just completely wrong the system is and, and why it's got to change. I've tried to get people to economists to measure the cost of not acting because when we take the average cost of approving a medicine for $40 million to a billion dollars, what ends up happening is all the poor country diseases never get funded. Right? You don't want to do trials on malaria. You don't want to do trials on dengue. You don't want to do trials on chikungunya. And so either it's a foundation or it's the military who often ends up in these places that funds these diseases. And, and the higher this thing goes, the less of a chance that we're going to get the interventions that really matter. I mean, look, the two things that really matter in healthcare besides prevention are antibiotics and vaccines. So, so think about this for one second. You get a measles vaccine. Measles has an RO, which is an infective ratio of 200 people per person infected. So if you don't have a measles vaccine, you are going to have a lot of people dead. And that epidemic is going to spread at a rate that makes COVID look slow. But you get one measles vaccine and, you know, it's 50 bucks and you never come back. It, that's a spectacular use of healthcare dollars.
1: What about education? Is our education getting less ethical?
2: So education, when you look at the average inflation curve, almost everything we do is faster, better, cheaper. So think of how much a big television used to cost. 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Think how much a cell phone used to cost. I used to
1: joke with my years years father ago. when he would go, grapefruit used to be a nickel. Yeah, dad, what did a good microwave oven cost yeah. back then when you were <laughs> exactly. growing up? Where, if you, you're not a cheap one, just a good one. You know, what did that cost? No such thing.
2: And so the two areas where instead of going down, it goes way up. It's healthcare and education. And so what that's forcing us to do is to really hurt the next generation's because they're carrying debt like we never carried. They're paying costs for college that we wouldn't have dreamed of paying. And unless if we start reversing that, then education is going to get worse. Less people are going to get educated and more people are going to be anti-science, anti-education. One of the potential benefits of COVID is it's forcing us to really think carefully about Residential education about great education to turn to people like you as educators who, for years, have been bringing science to people in a non-classroom way. So you've shown the world that you can teach better, that you can make science more interesting. What's more interesting than
3: science, people? Uh, Come on. Okay. Okay. So, so I I love the idea. Maybe we can clone Bill, or maybe we can use CRISPR to, to create an army of Bills, which I think is an exciting idea. But you know, as with healthcare. In education, you have this big kind of ossified system. How do you change it? Or are we going to get to the point where we we hit the wall, where it's so expensive, or we've lost so much competitiveness that we have to change or else some other country takes the lead?
2: That's exactly right. Some other country or some other enterprise. Right? We haven't found the model for education yet. I mean, remember how absolutely frustrating it used to be to try and get a cab in New York City at four o'clock in the afternoon, right? When Just when you did those cabby changeovers. And remember what it was like trying to get a cab on the edges of the suburbs of Washington, DC. You just couldn't get one, right? So there was such a disconnect between the service provided and what the customer wanted. And I think that's what's happening in education. There is an enormous gap between the great educators and the great speakers and the great teachers of this world. And then the average teacher. And, and I think Khan Academy's got an interesting model of flipping the classroom where you take your lessons outside and then you come inside and get coached.
1: Yeah, that's right.
2: In the classroom. I don't see if we are in an era of zoom teaching, why we don't have the thousand best teachers in the world teaching all the subjects. Well, we'll see what happens along
1: that line. Uh, yes. we, have an, we have an email from- Because this uh, is not
2: just a calling
3: show. It's an emailing uh, show. So from a guy named Patrick, he says, when technology is being developed to increase production in a place of work, how much thought goes into how it would affect the current workforce whose job might be at jeopardy? And then he says, thank you. So he's asking, is that something that people are thinking about? Is it something people are worrying about as they're projecting where these technologies are going?
2: And
1: are we going to replace all the teachers?
2: The, the answer to that question is it really depends on the culture. And, you know, there's a cliche, which is partly true, which is the Europeans work to live and Americans live to work. And and so the first question you get often when we used to get together at parties is, so what do you do? Right. And, and your work becomes your identity. And other cultures, it's not that way. Right. they there's other things that are much more important to them. And I think one of the fascinating things about this era of extraordinary economic abundance is the problem is distribution. It's not scarcity, right? When you move from physical objects to digital objects, you can give everybody an email account for free and everybody's better off. And by the way, you get richer by doing that. So so the logic of you can have, and I do better if you have flips the logic of economics and the ethics of scarcity 180 degrees. It then becomes an issue of, can I distribute this? Why don't other people have this? And you're going to get that in in the measure that we become more efficient at producing stuff, less and less people are going to have to work, and they may be working shorter and shorter hours, and they may be much more productive in those shorter hours. So when you look at what's happened in parts of Sweden and parts of the French economy, they're people who are working much shorter hours and being really productive. Um,
3: but I feel—I feel like almost my entire life, I've been hearing about the end of work. That you know, robots and computers are going right. to yeah. you know, re- replace not just the assembly line workers, but they are going to replace office workers. Uh, we were all going to live in this leisure society, and yet we don't seem to be a particularly leisurely society right now. You know, is there just something in the human nature, or is something in the in the sort of like societal needs that kind of keeps? Employment going that keeps the workload going, no matter what happens with the technology. And
1: one, I've been around you, man you
2: you are a mover. You keep it going. <laughs> You're not Mister Leisure Guy. But but there's a difference between working and doing. I write books because I want to get an idea out, not because anybody's holding a gun to my head or because I have to do it. All three of us know enough about science that we could invest in three or four things. And stop working. And, and that to me would be a nightmare because I don't see it as work. I see it as learning. I see it as getting up every morning and you open up Science Magazine, you open up nature, you open up MIT Technology Review or whatever. And and the reaction in the in the midst of all this bad news is, wow, that's so cool. Right? I mean, this this object they just found, you know, and this explosion that that's 3.4 billion years into the history of the universe that lasts for seconds, that's about a week old from being announced. That is so extraordinary. And and I think we're so lucky because those of us who have had the opportunity to get educated, to understand science, have opportunities other people just aren't gonna have. You know, we we have the opportunities to learn and to work in stuff that we wanna work in, to do the stuff we wanna work in. And that's, that's a freedom.
0: Science rules will be right back. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. You're listening to Science Rules.
1: How did you get started on all this, all this book writing, all this uh, uh, forward
2: thinking? So look, it's a, it's a story similar to my being, you know, a bigot against gay people because that's what I was taught. And, and it took until I got to college to meet the first openly gay person. And, and within a month, I was going, wait a minute, I am so wrong on this stuff. Almost the identical thing happened to me in science, except it took me a lot longer. So again, I grew up in Mexico. My school never had science labs, never had scientists. I never had a mentor. I thought politics and economics and international affairs were the bee's knees. And it wasn't until I began writing a book in my late 30s about why countries appear and disappear and what makes a country successful that I understood the ability to understand, invent, and apply new technologies makes more of a difference than almost anything else.
1: The progress of science and useful arts.
2: Exactly. And then I got into genomics. And fortunately, it was early enough that I could read every single paper ever written on genomics on my dining room table. And I did. And then I wrote on genomics. And my career took off in science, which to anybody who knew me before 30, that would have been the least likely career path, any of them would ever imagine.
3: But here's my question. I mean, there are a lot of people who immerse themselves in science. There are not whole, so many people who consider themselves futurists, who sort of look at future trends. How do you become a futurist? Is it something, yes. is it a mindset? Is it is there a training you do to, of uh, you know, looking at history and, and mapping trends? What lets you
2: be a futurist? You know, I think the most important thing is to be curious and humble. So don't ever write something that you've been learning about for three months. Write about stuff you've known for 10 years. And and once you've known about it for six years or 10 years, then write the book on. It. And in the process of writing that book, watch where you're wrong, admit where you're wrong, and and sort of iterate it. Right. And and if you're 50 or 60 percent right, you're doing really well. Right. What what drives me crazy is all these people who say, I know what's going to happen. I've always been right. You know what? No. Uh, you'd be the world's richest person if you knew that. You'd, you'd be beyond Einstein if you knew that. And, and it's, it's having the, the patience to observe stuff and to learn from history and to learn from the smartest people out there. I, I'm going to spend the next 10 years on the brain. So, I joined the synthetic neurobiology lab at MIT. And I sit next to a guy called Ed Boyden, who I think is one of the smartest people on earth. And he's at least 20 years younger than I am. And I can't tell you what a joy it is to just learn this stuff, to, to watch this stuff. And then to think through, okay, if science does this, what does that mean for the economy? What does it mean for national competitiveness? What does it mean for society? What does it mean for ethics? And, and those are the pieces that I'm interested in unpacking So you just use
1: the expression which we started with. You know, if science does this, you're talking about if researchers or scientists do this, right? So then, a question for me is always: What motivates a scientist?
2: I went to an obscure. I went to a New Year's party, and there was a poor schlub sitting over in the corner alone, and nobody was talking to him. So I figured I'd go over and introduce myself and talk to him for five minutes. After three hours of conversation, we decided that we were going to sail across the Atlantic together. And then when I arrived in D.C. in the middle of a terrible snowstorm on a sailboat, three weeks later, I decided I was going to change my career and I was going to focus on genomics and just do it. And this obscure researcher turned out to be Craig Venter.
1: Who sequenced the human genome. Yep, yeah. He
2: convinced you that this was the future? You and Craig hanging out? So he, he talked about his stuff. And I started thinking, you know, if what you're saying is true, I don't think you understand how broadly this is going to change society. And, and so that's when I wrote this book on how genomics is going to change everything. And of course, at that point, nobody knew what genomics was. It's incredible how quickly our lives change and how quickly we take it for granted. So when I tell my kids, you know, I was born before Google, What? I was born Uh, before cell phones. It's like, what?
1: (laughs) I did a thing the other day, a celebrity substitute, where I showed up electronically in this classroom. And uh, I had a phone on the wall with a cord. And these two kids who were in middle school had never used a phone with a coily cord. It hadn't even occurred to them. So let me ask you this. Do you think that CRISPR-style technology can be deployed in, say, The next five years as a futurist, do you think it could happen that fast? The kind of radical changes we're discussing could happen and fast enough to make a difference in this pandemic?
2: I think when you're talking about deploying technologies that are as new as CRISPR, you have to assess relative risk and alternatives. So you have now shown that with relatively small modifications in behavior, you can take the pandemic contagion way below one.
1: This is where a person infected, the fraction of people he or she infects is less than one.
2: Exactly. And at that point, you kill the pandemic. So you don't need the vaccine. You don't need CRISPR. The only situation under which I would think using something as unproven and with such big potential side effects as CRISPR, because you're modifying the genome in a fundamental way, would be if you were living through something like the Black Plague, where 25 percent of the population died they died in a short period of time and there was no alternative right so if social distancing didn't work if mass didn't work and 25 percent of the population is dying then yes you deploy something like CRISPR but it's a little bit like using a you know a nuclear weapon where a couple of grenades will do
3: okay but looking further ahead let's say we're not talking about five years what if we're talking about you know 20 years or 50 years in principle can you imagine? CRISPR engineering, that that could be the end of infectious disease, that we could have super immune system. Is that something that's sort of within the range of a future you can see?
2: Yes. I, I think you could. I, I mean, we thought we'd done away with infectious disease, Right.
3: That's, right? <laughs> we, we, we've had this idea yeah. before that you know, we know we know how to do it.
2: I think we will be far, far better at stopping infectious disease 20 years out using instruments like CRISPR. The, the more interesting use of CRISPR to me is I, I think it's essential that we get human beings off this planet because right now if, if you believe in human rights we're, we're betting absolutely everything on 17 black right because the universe is a nasty place you, you get meteorites you get suns exploding you get collisions etc so you, you better diversify the species if you want the species to survive or the subsequent species and to do that, you really have to modify the human body in fundamental ways to be more radiation resistant, to have less of your bones falling apart as you travel in zero gravity, maybe to be able to have children in a different gravity, to be able to grow crops in a different place. So if, if we ever want to get off this place and live anywhere else, there hasn't been the evolutionary pressure on the genes to adapt to that environment. Yep, so I'm willing to do that.
3: Yeah, sure. Hey, Corey. Corey. Wait, wait, Bill. I, I hear something. Do you hear something?
0: Yes. Oh my goodness. Yes. That's I hear thunder,
3: thunder and where there's thunder, there's lightning. And yeah. where there's lightning, there's a lightning round. Here we ready? go.
2: Ready.
1: Did you see, did you predict the podcast boom?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> what is
1: your favorite technological innovation of all time? Your favorite one?
2: Clean water. You know, for, for that's why kids used to drink wine and beer, because there wasn't no a clear water.
1: Oh, it's one of the days. Uh, <laughs> speaking of which, what is the most disruptive innovation, good or bad?
2: The ability to begin to image and change memories in the brain.
1: In the future, coming
2: up. It's we're getting there. It's like you science know, fiction. I think pretty darn soon you're gonna be able to erase Specific memories using light. Light. And so you'd put
1: a probe in somebody's skull? This is like with optogenetics
2: or? Yeah. Well, optogenetics allows you to map it. Mm -hmm. But light pulses will allow you to eliminate certain neurons.
1: Everybody, what's
3: optogenetics? (laughs) We're in the lightning round, but what is optogenetics? Well, where better to talk about optogenetics than in a lightning round?
2: (laughs) It's the ability to introduce a virus into brain cells so that they fluoresce like jellyfish.
1: What are you going to do with this light? You're going to create memories,
2: modify them? Well, in you can induce memories, you can modify them, or you can erase them. And this is a probe under the skull? Well, we're trying to see if it could be done externally in a focused way.
1: Through your eyeball or some crazy thing?
2: You know, there's some really strange sounding experiments that may pan out. So people are now using a frequency similar to the frequency of uh, fluorescent lights. And, and if you watch television with that, it almost acts like a, a water pick does on your teeth, except on your neurons. It makes them vibrate mm. and they shed plaque.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: So it may be a way of attacking Alzheimer's.
1: Wow. How cool would that be by watching television? All right. What is it? What do most people not get? about what you do? What do most people not understand about what you do?
2: Before I go out and I make an argument, I usually think it through very carefully and I explain it to grammar school kids. And so I don't get a lot of people saying, I don't get any of that.
1: I say all the time, fourth grade is pretty good. 10 years old is the only, the difference between a 10 year old and most adults is experience. Ability to reason is pretty much there at 10 years old. If you can explain it to a 10-year-old, you're doing pretty well. Do you feel that some occupations are more ethical than others? What's a bad a bad occupation ethically?
2: You mean besides politics? Ah, ah, uh, ah. <laughs> I say all the time, what's the alternative? I mean, one alternative is most of the Chinese government, with all the flaws it's got and all the problems it's got, which are enormous, most of them are engineers. They've taken about a quarter of humanity out of poverty in a very short period of time at an enormous cost of personal freedom and an enormous cost of a whole series of things. But it's a government that thinks in a very different way.
1: As an engineer, I like to remind people how many Fortune 500 companies are run by engineers. It's it's a way of thinking.
3: Uh, So here, in in that vein, is the world overall getting more ethical?
2: Yes. Why is it getting more ethical? It's getting infinitely better. It it doesn't seem that way, but that's what's what's so important to think about technology. Most people think about technology, they think the Terminator or 2001 or the Matrix or whatever. What technology has allowed us to do, the application of technology, what all these inventions have allowed us to do is to be far more generous and ethical. We, We don't have to treat people in the way we used to treat them because We've got alternatives, and we live better, and we can allow a lot of other people to live better.
1: There you go. What are you going to be doing in 10 years? Are you going to be working on brains in 10 years?
2: Hopefully, I will have a book out on the brain. (laughs) I will still be sailing in Maine, and I will have found a new field to get fascinated by, and I'll be starting the research for a book that will be out in 20 years.
1: Well, there you go. All right, stay yeah. tuned, everybody.
3: There's there is a life plan. <laughs> That's
1: pretty cool. <laughs> hey, thank you, man. Just thank fascinating. you. Grateful. We've talked about how technology is going to affect our future. Our guest today has been Juan Enriquez. His upcoming book is Right, Wrong: How Technology Transforms Our Ethics. It really is an imp- a hugely important idea to think about. Remember, everybody, when it comes to changing humanity for the better. Science, science rules. rules. If you like Science Rules, please take a moment and rate and review it at Apple Podcast and on Stitcher. It helps us out. It helps other people learn about the show. It helps us tailor the show to what you want to hear about. So be sure to look at my socials for more information about our upcoming guests. I'm at Bill Nye on all those things. And meanwhile, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, give us a call at 201-472-0785 or submit a question, as many of you did today at askbillnye.com. Science Rules is produced by Harry Huggins and the very same Corey S. Powell. Hello. Casey Holford composed our original theme. Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. And Chris Bannon is the CCO, the chief content officer at Stitcher. And at Stitcher, everyone, Science Science Rules.
0: Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.